Um, and we will be looking at the last part of the Sermon on the Mount, the uh, last part of the first part of the Sermon on the Mount from the Beatitudes, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 9 through 12. If you want to go ahead and turn there with me. Now, if you do not have a Bible, there should be one close to you, by the way. I think Dusty said that as well. Um, and if you don't own a Bible, please take that with you. Read it. We would love for you to have it. Um, but we will um, refresh a little bit of kind of what we, have, what we have gone through so far, and then we will head into chapter, or verses 9 through 12. So every week at the outset of every one of these sermons, we have talked about how it is believed that this is a much longer sermon than just the words we have written here in Scripture. It is believed that this sermon pretty much took all of the daylight hours of that day, six hours even, possibly, or maybe even more. It was just Jesus talking to his disciples, and then a crowd kind of started gathering. What's he saying? What's he saying? Then more people came. What's he saying? And then more people came, and it turned into a larger crowd. But this is Matthew's kind of Cliff Notes version of what he said. Just like you guys sometimes take notes when you hear a preacher preaching or any speech of any kind, if you take notes, you don't write down every single word that someone says. You write down what may have hit you. You write down what may have been important to you. And this is what the Holy Spirit led Matthew to write down about that particular sermon. However, as a sermon goes, and we have just started this Sermon on the Mount, as a sermon goes, it is highly effective. We pray every week that no matter who is preaching here at Mission Church, that it would encourage the believer, that it would convict them of their sins so that they would repent and turn back to Jesus, that it would save lost people if there are lost people in the room hearing this message, that it would draw them to Jesus, convict their hearts so that they will repent and turn to Jesus for the first time in their life. Or if they are already a Christian, turn back to Jesus because they have been turning away from him. And this sermon, if it hasn't been doing that over these past few weeks, I don't think you've been listening correctly. I don't think you've been paying attention to what Jesus is, is saying. He is, he is giving us the very essence of what it means to follow Christ, to be a Christian. Blessed are those who do this because they love Jesus. If they love Jesus, they will do these things. And we get the same thing here. And what we see here is that none of these things, at least to me, come naturally. None of these things do we just come out of the womb going, I'm going to be meek. I'm going to be merciful. I'm going to be poor in spirit. I'm going to mourn for my sin because I feel so bad about it. None of these things are just things that we will up on our own. It is spirit-led. Christ has to actually activate these things in us. And sometimes it gets hard to hear because, again, they don't come natural. We don't look at ourselves and go, oh, I, I'm already the kind of those things in our natural self. It, it takes work. It takes effort. It takes relying on God to do these things in us. And today will be no different. However, today may be the hardest one that we have to hear. It may be the most difficult to put into practice. I don't think any of us are going to leave here today after hearing what Jesus says in these verses and go, man, I can't wait to put that into practice. I can't wait to suffer so that I can glorify God. And yet, maybe we should. We'll see. We'll see how that turns out. But it is very difficult to hear that this is how we are to act when things don't go our way or when following Jesus doesn't work out according to our plan or our expectations. It's very hard to hear. It's even harder to execute 
And we see that pattern throughout all of these Beatitudes, so this one will be no different. Now, having said all of that, I'm going to read Scripture this morning. And I would ask you, if you would, stand with me in reverence for God's Word as we read. I'm actually going to read verses 2 through 12, just to reiterate and refresh as to where we've been and where we are going. So we'll be reading verses um, Matthew chapter 5, verses 2 through 12. All right, it says, And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the poor in heart, for they shall see God. Pure in heart, sorry. For they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you first and foremost praising you for who you are, for what you have done, that you have already accomplished these things, that Jesus lived these beatitudes to perfection in our place, died the death that we deserved for not living them to perfection, and we can rely on him and you to save us, to sanctify us, to draw us closer to you, and to make us look more like Jesus. We thank you for your word that expresses these thoughts to us, that it is infallible and inerrant, that is, there is nothing wrong with the words on this page, so we should just preach these words and nothing else. And that is what I pray just now, that you would move me aside, that my opinions and my thoughts do not matter, but that your spirit would lead the words that come from my mouth. That if anything is going to come from my mouth that would not be approved by you, that you would prevent me from doing so, that I would simply be your filter, speaking your words. And then I pray for the hearers this morning as well, that they would... Listen to your spirit, that you would attune their hearts and their minds to what you are saying, and that they could take this to a lost and dying world, and we can make more disciples in your name to worship you forevermore. We thank you again for this time. We pray that you are here with us. We pray that you would bless it, and it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, you may be seated. I won't make you stand the whole time, I promise. All right, picking up in verse 9, this is where we will start today. We see the same motif, right? Blessed are the blank, for they blank, right? So blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So what is a peacemaker? Or better question, I guess, what is peace? What are, if we're making peace, what are we making? Now, depending on who you ask, you may get different answers, right? Hey, what's peace? You may get a military answer. You may get a political answer, especially in an election year. You may get a spiritual answer. Oh, I've got very uh, peace of mind, or I've got inner peace. You may get a relational answer. I, I don't have any problems with anybody right now. If you're old enough to go to Woodstock, you may give a completely different answer. I don't know what that exactly would mean, but I definitely know it's not what Jesus is talking about here. But you may get many different answers as to, okay, what is peace? And I don't know that any of those sum up what Jesus is actually talking about. They may be included in what Jesus is talking about, but that is definitely not specifically what he is referring to. I know that last one isn't. But he, he is not talking about freedom from disturbance or restful or tranquil, just getting by or status quo. That's not what he is referring to here. That's how Webster's Dictionary would define it, tranquil, 
restful, free from disturbance. Now, Jesus even says, he specifically differentiates in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give, so let not your hearts be troubled. So clearly here, he is saying, my peace is different than what the world offers, or worldly forms of peace, even if the world isn't the one offering it, though peace you can find in this world is different than what I am referring to. Now that tells us kind of what it isn't. So what is it? Well, let's start at the beginning. In Old Testament times, we see the peace as the term shalom, right? Shalom can mean many different types, but it is peace between people, peace between countries, peace between God and man, peace between families, peace between two different parties usually. It is almost always, though, if not every time, it is tied to obedience, we most often and almost exclusively see God either granting peace in its various forms to his people because they are obeying him, or he is removing peace from his people because they are disobeying him. Either way, it is God who is in control of whether or not they have peace. He gives, he takes away. Sometimes we see it traded for a bowl of soup. Sometimes we see it traded for a golden calf that just popped out of the fire that way. It's seriously the dumbest excuse of ever. Um, I, I don't know, Moses. It just I, I threw the gold in and that happened. Anyway, so we see it traded many times, but it is still God in control of whether or not it is given or taken away. He is the one that originates it, starts it, gives it, or, or removes it. Now, we also see a switch in when you get to New Testament times. From New Testament times, it goes from this idea of shalom to a word that I'm going to try to pronounce correctly in Greek. It's erene, I think. E-I-R-E-N-E. -E. There you go, if you need a visual. But it is, it is from the New Testament, is more closely related to tranquility or freedom from disturbance or restful. And I know what you're asking me right now. Isn't that what you said it wasn't before in Webster's Dictionary? Why did we just go around our elbow to get to our thumb? My mom used to say that all the time, and I was like, what does that even mean? And now y'all are going, yep, that's the long way around. So why did we go the long way around to get to the same definition that I just said it wasn't? And my question would be, what has changed from shalom to erini? And the answer is Jesus. Jesus changes everything. That is why we can say, he can, he can say, I leave you my peace not the peace, tranquil, restful, free from disturbance that the world offers. It is my peace. Webster's Dictionary is saying peace is restful because everyone is basically leaving you alone and letting you be who you are. Jesus and the Bible would say that you can be restful because Jesus has eternally changed your identity and you are no longer who you are. That is a distinct difference from what Webster would say. It is still tied completely to obedience, though. It can only be granted to the obedient. Luckily for us, Jesus was obedient for us. It is granted to his obedience, and now he is the one filtering it to us. He affords us his peace. That is why he can say, my peace, I leave with you, right? Jesus is now our peace. We can now have peace with God because of Jesus. We can now have peace with others because of what Jesus has done in our lives. We can forgive when people wrong us, 
even and especially when they don't deserve to be forgiven, because we can look back and go, I didn't deserve to be forgiven, and yet somehow I'm in this position because of Jesus, therefore I can pour it out on others, right? Jesus becomes our eternal abiding peace because he changes our identity. Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Romans 6.6, 6, our old self was crucified with him so that our body of sin might be done away with. I could go on and on about scriptures that reiterate that we have peace with God, lasting peace with God because what Jesus has done, because Jesus has unequivocally changed who we are, changed our identity, and made us new creations in God's kingdom. And because of these truths, we can now be restful, we can now be tranquil, because we know these truths and we know that we are no longer identified by what we have done, what we are doing, or what we will do. That doesn't mean we go and sin anytime we want because Jesus has changed our identity. That means we don't go sin because Jesus has changed our identity. Worldly peace is fleeting. Jesus' peace is not Worldly peace depends on the whims and the feelings of those granting it, right? Hey, we're at peace until my feelings change, until I don't like what you're doing anymore, and then we're not at peace anymore. That's not true of Jesus. True peace doesn't change because it is based on an unchanging promise from an unchanging God. This means we can have peace even if we are at war. This means we can have peace even if we are mad at someone, whether they deserve it or not. This means... We can have peace even when it doesn't seem peaceful. I don't know if that even made sense, but I hope it did. It's because our peace is not based upon our circumstances. True peace is based on a person, and his name is Jesus. So we are called to be peacemakers. And I know you're thinking, well, if peace is granted from God and it's granted through Jesus, through salvation, through changing our identity, all of these things. I can't do that. I can't save anyone. I can't change anyone's identity. And you would be right. You would absolutely be correct in that statement. So let's look at this more as peace extenders, peace showers, peace givers, because we have been given. We'll look at that a little more closely in a, in a moment. But again, just like every other one of these Beatitudes, this is not a natural transition or natural disposition. This is not something we just wake up one day, I'm going to be a peacemaker because that's who I am. You may be nice, you may be moral, you may be good, but when it really comes down to it, we all want our way. And that is the definition of not being a peacemaker. The New Testament is full of references of peace. Just a couple. Romans 12:18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. 1 Peter 3 10 through 11, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. I'm really good at that. No. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See, this peace is not easy. He's not asking us to pursue something that comes naturally or easy to us. It's also not cheap. We must remember what purchased it for us. We must remember it took us from enemy to friend of God, right, to at peace with God. We were enemies of God, according to Romans, but then what? Christ died to purchase our peace. That's not easy. 
That's not cheap, and it should never be viewed as easy or cheap. This means to pursue peace and to be a peacemaker, we also must die to ourselves. Again, it's not easy to hear. None of us wake up in the morning going, man, I can't wait to not have my way today in any circumstance. I can't wait to let everyone else have their way in spite of the way I want to, to do things. And yet that's what Scripture is calling us to do here. We must die to ourselves. We must stop asking the question, how does this affect me? What's in it for me? Why should I when this person did this? Why shouldn't I do this to that person when they treated me this way? We must begin seeing ourselves in light of these other Beatitudes. We must see ourselves how poor in spirit we really are. We have nothing to offer in return for this change of identity. We must be mournful over the complete and utter blackness of our hearts and realize we have no way of changing that outside of Jesus. We have no way of changing the blackness of our hearts unless Jesus changes it for us. We must hunger and thirst for righteousness knowing that it is something that we don't possess, so we must hunger and thirst to get it. We must hunger and thirst to go after it, to pursue it in Christ. We must be pure in heart, singularly minded and focused on Christ as the only one who can heal us from those things. Then and only then will we be clear on the fact that we don't matter. Our opinions don't matter. Our feelings don't matter. How many times have we heard this in today's culture? You're violating my rights. First of all, I don't think they have the fundamental definition of rights quite, quite defined correctly. But you're violating my rights because you said something bad about me. Eh, let's agree to disagree. But what we are due or what is fair, right? I hate that word. That's not fair. We don't want fair. Fair is God letting us stay where we are, right? Fair is God saying, all right, you asked for it, you got it, here you go. I won't send Jesus. And then we're all in a mess, right? Our preferences are not worth fighting for. Our feelings don't matter. I'm not saying you can't feel sad or feel anything. That doesn't mean we're stoics, right? That doesn't mean we just turn our feelings off. It means we learn to deal with them in a peaceful way, in a respectful way, in a loving way, in a way that honors and glorifies Jesus above ourselves and above the way we feel. We can only be peacemakers when we view our natural selves accurately and in desperate need of change. That is when we can reach the end of ourselves and realize that Jesus is our peace. And just like we saw in the Old Testament, this peace is a gift. God is still in control of giving it and or taking it away. And if that is true, then there is no reason we should hoard it. There's no reason we should keep this peace to ourselves. There's no reason we should think, well, I've got peace. That's all that matters, right? And not extend it to others. If we have been freely given a gift from God, then it is incumbent upon us as those who have received this gift to extend it to others. Peacemakers, peace extenders, peace showers, right? We have been given, we must extend it out to others. We can forgive, we can let things slide, we can be reconciled. Here's a big one, dudes in the room. We can apologize and mean it, right? Not the sarcastic one that we offer many times to our wife. I'm sorry. Sorry you took it that way. I'm the king of that, right? Don't nod your head back there. But 
We can apologize and admit wrongs. We can say we are wrong because we realize it, we don't matter, right? Why is it so hard to admit we're wrong? Because our ego gets involved, right? We don't want to admit we're wrong. When the Bible tells us that's all we should admit, I'm wrong, I need Jesus. I've sinned, I need Jesus. I'm terrible, I need Jesus. Pastor Eric, last week or the week before, made the joke that we have one sermon here. You're terrible, God's not, come to the altar, right? We don't even do altar calls, but you get the idea, right? That's our one sermon. Natural selves, not good. Jesus, awesome. Done. And that's what we have to realize here. We can admit wrongs when we realize that. We can apologize because we are all going to be wrong sometime. We are all going to need this peace extended to us, so we should also extend it to others. It is only at the end of ourselves that we can truly be peacemakers or extenders. Selfishness has no place in this particular scripture. So we get a firm handle on peace, right? In most churches, that would have been the sermon. We would be done. Instead, we're about halfway. So we get a firm handle on peace, and then we read verses 10 and 11. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. We will take these two together because most biblical scholars kind of view them as kind of the same thing. He just makes it a little more personal in the second one. It's blessed are those in verse 10, and then it's blessed are you in verse 11. But it's kind of saying the same thing. So we will take them a little bit together. But either way, as you read those, you go, hold on a minute. You just, we're talking about peace and how we should live at peace with everyone. And then all of a sudden, everybody's going to come against us. And Jesus' answer would be yes to that. But he uses the same word, blessed are you, to describe both of those parties. Blessed are you when you are a peacemaker, a peace extender, when you show others peace, when you do things that keep the peace or make things peaceable around you. And blessed are you when people hate you for it. It seems almost like they contradict each other. So before moving on, one thing we do have to realize about peace is we must live at peace with others, but it is not at all costs. We cannot sacrifice the gospel or give permission for sin in the name of peace. It is not that peacemaking supersedes truth. It is not that peacemaking or political correctness is what most people would call it in today's culture, right? That does not supersede the truth of the gospel. We must be willing to stand firm in that. Jesus said in Matthew 10 that he did not come to bring peace but the sword. And then here he says we must be peacemakers, right? So which time was Jesus lying? And the answer is neither. What he's saying is live at peace when it has to do with your opinions, your feelings, things that don't really matter in the long run. But the gospel is going to divide people into two groups. And both groups are going to be passionate. There's really no middle third group here. It's you believe the gospel or you don't. And both groups are passionate about their beliefs most of the time. And if you are in the gospel group and you are unwilling to acquiesce to their demands and change, which you should be unwilling to do, you are going to have problems. People are going to ask you questions when they already know how you're going to answer them just so they can debate and argue and get mad at you. Does that mean we shouldn't ask, answer the question because in the name of peace? Or is that a gospel issue that we need to address? 
People are going to come at you because they know how you already believe and they want to address it. Many times they do this in front of everyone, right? They don't come to you personally and just let you have a conversation. They want to do it in front of everyone so that everybody can kind of jump on the bandwagon, right? Right? But either way, this is going to happen. If you are unwilling to change your message, if you are unwilling to sacrifice or compromise the gospel, these things are going to happen. And we cannot sacrifice the message of Christ in the name of peace. Too many churches are doing that. Too many, I don't know if I should do this or not, too many Christians are doing that. They're sacrificing the truth of the gospel because it's, a lot easier to just go with the flow, right? And they can keep their beliefs, but they keep them to themselves. They're not willing to speak anything that may or may not offend someone in the name of peace. You see, the gospel is folly to unbelievers, right? It says this in Scripture. But we need to let the gospel be the folly, not us and our words and our actions and our feelings. So this stark transition here is put here for a reason. They go together. I want you to really get this. If we attempt to live at peace for the gospel's sake, that's key words there, for the gospel's sake, we will be persecuted. But when we are persecuted, we should strive for peace for the gospel's sake. I'll say that one more time. If we attempt to live at peace for the gospel's sake, we will be persecuted. But when we are persecuted, we should strive for peace for the gospel's sake. You see, it's, it's not the peace itself that is offensive. Everyone wants that, right? If you took a poll outside of the next hundred people that you see, hey, do you want to live at peace? No, it doesn't matter what their definition of peace is. Their answer is probably going to be, yeah, I would love to live at peace, whatever that means. So it's not the peace specifically that offends. It is living for peace for the gospel's sake. That's why it specifically says here that blessed are those who are persecuted, what? For righteousness' sake. We must be willing to stand firm for righteousness' sake, for the gospel's sake. I'm going to read off a bunch of scriptures here. I'm not going to read the actual words. If you want to write them down, write really fast. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. 2 Corinthians 1, 24. Galatians 5, 1. Ephesians 6, 13. Philippians 1, 27. Philippians 4, 1. 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 15. And 1 Peter 5, 12. All of these scriptures say the same thing. And it says we must stand firm in our faith, in the teaching of the apostles, in grace, in God, in our beliefs, whatever... The rest of it is, it's stand firm. Just go home, Google stand firm scripture. It'll pull them all up for you. Numerous references tell us that we cannot back down. However, this is going to cause tension. We must strive for peace as long as it does not compromise the gospel. People want us to change our beliefs to fit an ever-changing culture and at what point does that end? At what point do we stop changing our beliefs when the culture changes as the wind blows? If we change our beliefs, that what do we really stand for? What are we really rooted in? And the Bible is very clear that we cannot do that. We must be rooted in the gospel. We must stand firm in the gospel and stand firm in what we believe. 
But because we cannot change, because the Bible tells us do not change, to stand firm in that, we are going to suffer for righteousness' sake. Notice here what it doesn't say, though. It does not say suffering for a cause makes you blessed. There are some great causes in the world. My sister is the biggest anti-abortion person I've ever met, and I respect her highly for it. She will fight you, I think maybe even with her fists for I'm not sure, definitely verbally, but she will fight you over the abortion issue. There are reasons behind that we won't go into, but she is staunchly that. But it doesn't say suffering for a cause get, makes you blessed, right? It doesn't say suffering for political reasons, even if they're good ones, makes you blessed. Here's a big one that we all need to hear. It doesn't say suffering because you're a jerk and no one likes you makes you blessed, right? Oh, I'm being persecuted because of my faith. No, you're being persecuted because literally no one can stand you, and that's why you got audited 12 years in a row, or whatever it is that's persecuting you, right? It's not by your actions. It's for righteousness' sake. It is specific to the gospel. It is specific to the truth of Jesus. That is why in verse 11 it says, People will utter all kinds of evil falsely on my account. If it's true of you, that's just consequences. That's not persecution. That's just you made your bed and now you got to lie in it, right? So, again, I think we say this pretty often here. Don't go out and be a jerk. We've got enough of those in the world, Christian and non. So let's live at peace, but be willing to stand firm in the truth, right? The Bible is quite clear, though, that this suffering will happen to every single one of us. However, this message is so unpopular today because we like to pretend that it's optional, right? Well, that applied to the disciples back then, or that applies to Mark and Parker because they went overseas. They, they went into it. It's their fault, right? That's what people will say. Well, yeah, it, it happens over there or in this country or elsewhere. That, does, that doesn't apply to us. 2 Timothy 3.12 says... All, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will, not maybe, not possibly, not could be, will be persecuted. John 15, 18 through 25 says that if, I won't read the whole thing. If the world hated Jesus, of course they are going to hate you for following him. If they persecuted Jesus, of course they are going to persecute you for following him. We should not be surprised when anti-Christian hostility increases. We should honestly be, be surprised when it doesn't. We should start asking questions when anti-Christian hostility isn't on the rise and wonder, are we changing our message? And wonder, have we blended into the culture too much and they don't really care that we're around because we just fit right in. Luke 6.26 says, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. And John Stott, in his commentary on that verse, says, Universal popularity was as much the lot of false prophets as persecution was of the true prophets. Now, I'm going to be very uh, transparent and honest with you guys. That's extremely hard for me to hear. The biggest sin issue in my life is that I want everybody to like me. I don't want anyone to be able to say anything bad about me. And I'm not saying in some ways that that's not good. We, again, don't be a jerk, right? We want to go out. We want to be a good representation of Christ. And many times that means 
being good to people, being moral, being all, I, I get that, right? But too many times I take it way too far. I'm not willing to speak the truth to someone because they, well, they might be mad at me. I work at a program living facility with recovering drug addicts and alcoholics. They are going to mess up. I am going to have to tell them the truth, right? And I'm learning this day by day that sometimes you just got to look them in the eye and be like, dude, you were wrong. Shape up. Change this. Do this. Try this way. Turn to Jesus. Repent. All of those things, right? But too many times, like, I don't even like it when someone I don't like doesn't like me. If I find, if I find out that someone I don't like doesn't like me, I'll go out of my way to make them like me so that I can go back to not liking them on my own terms. And yes, it is okay to judge me right now because that is pitiful. It's sad, but I can't take it. I can't stand it when I know for a fact that someone doesn't like me. But the fact of the matter is, because of the gospel, people are not going to like me. And that should be true of all of us in this room. Because of righteousness sake, because we are living for Jesus, the world is going to turn against us. We won't fit in with everyone. Now, we can surround ourselves in a Christian bubble, but I don't think the gospel calls us to do that either. So the gospel is going to cause tension. But Stott says, and I agree, that everyone liking you is a sign that maybe you're not living the gospel. When we identify with a suffering Messiah, there's no reason we should be surprised when we also suffer. We must look at this in pr proper perspective. Jesus exercised every one of these Beatitudes perfectly. Would we agree? This means yes. Okay? Perfectly. And they murdered him. Gruesomely. In ways that I don't even want to talk about in mixed company. It was so bad, right? And our goal is to be more Christ-like. And yet... We expect to be saved from suffering by following these same Beatitudes imperfectly. We're not even as good at it as Jesus was, and yet we expect, well, we won't be treated badly for it. We'll live good, moral, decent lives, and people will just like us, no matter what we say or do. If we just live for Jesus, people will like us, and that's just simply not true, nor does it even really make sense. We are going to follow a man that they murdered for it, in the, and we're going to do the same things he did and expect a completely different outcome. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, if you don't know who that is, please go home and Google him. Uh, but he would understand suffering for Christ more than any of us in this room for sure. And more than most people ever, period. Besides Paul, Jesus, you know, the big ones. But he says this, Discipleship means allegiance to the suffering Christ. And it is therefore not at all surprising that Christians should be called upon to suffer. And here's the kicker. In fact, it is a joy and a token of his grace. Upon reading that the first time, I went, what? There, no, 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 no. That's, that was my response. I, I may have even verbally said it when I was in the room by myself. And if Steph overheard me, she probably thought I was weird. But seriously, how can that be grace? Suffering, persecution, people not liking you, people coming against you, ostracizing you, whatever ways that it takes place. Persecution can be many forms. But how is that grace? Why is Jesus claiming to be such a great God, claiming he is here to love us and save us, and then he's calling us to this life? 
to a life that the Apostle Paul described as if this in this life only do we have hope, we are people most to be pitied because this life is going to not be great. And if we have no reward to look forward to, we have nothing after this life, then stop doing it because there's no reason to go through this stuff if there's nothing after this, right? If this life is the only hope we've got, then live it up. Don't be here next Sunday if this is the only life we've got because there's different uses of your time. If, there, if there's no reward, there's no heaven, there's no afterlife, if Jesus can't save you, then we are people of most to be pitied because living for Jesus is going to cause all of this persecution. But it is those who suffer for righteousness' sake that have the kingdom of heaven. They are the ones that will inherit this new kingdom and Jesus as their king. John 18, 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. That is how it is grace. That is how we can see that we are blessed when people persecute us and revile us and speak things falsely against us. And that is how we cannot pay back that evil. We cannot revile in return like Jesus did. Not because it is fun, not because it's pleasurable, not because we look forward to it in some weird way, because it shows us that we are a part of something that is not of this world and we will be ushered into it when Jesus returns. That brings us to verse 12. And before I read it, many of you are maybe like me thinking, all right, so I'm called to suffer. I can do it. I can grip my teeth. I can grin and bear it. I can hold out, you know, this life is short. People say that, right? Life is short. I can, I can endure this this persecution, this suffering, if I have to. If God doesn't leave me a choice, then I can, I can tough it out. And then we read verse 12, and he says, that ain't good enough. He says, rejoice and be glad when you are persecuted, right? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the unpopular message. It's unpopular enough that Jesus is saying you are going to suffer. Nobody wants to hear that. But even some people can go, okay, I can deal with that. But now he's saying not only do you have to go through it, but you have to rejoice and be glad as you're going through it and because you went through it and because God is taking you through it. What is Jesus talking about? How could he possibly say that we rejoice and be glad in these times? How could he look at the Apostle Paul and all of the things that he had to go through in his life and go, Paul, rejoice and be glad, brother. It's grace, bro. This is what we're doing here. John Stott says, when faced with persecution of this nature, listen to all of these things that we are not to do that naturally is kind of how we face persecution. It says, we are not to retaliate like an unbeliever, strike one, nor sulk like a child, strike two, nor to lick our wounds in self-pity like a dog, strike three, we're already out, nor just grin and bear it like a stoic, strike four, still less to pretend we enjoy it like a masochist, maybe not strike five, I don't know too many people that do that, but what then? We are to rejoice as a Christian should, and even as Luke 6.23 puts it, leap for joy. What then are we rejoicing? 
And the rest of the verse answers that question. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. We may lose everything on this earth, literally everything we have, but we are going to inherit eternity. We are going to inherit infinite riches. We are going to be forever reconciled and united with the Most High God and our Savior in heaven forever. We don't even understand what that term means. Forever. And we know that this persecution is one way that Jesus specifically identifies with us. As we read through the account of Saul on the Damascus Road in Acts chapter 9, what does Jesus say to Saul after he knocks him off his donkey, right? Acts 9, 4, and 5. It says, And falling to the ground, we heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Just so we don't have any confusion. And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Had Paul, Saul, ever met Jesus on earth? Not one time do we have an account or even an inkling that that happened. And yet, this is an astounding declaration. Jesus took it personally that Paul was dragging his believers out and persecuting them. Not Jesus himself. He had already gone, right? He had already been resurrected and ascended, and Saul was persecuting believers. And Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? He identifies with us through suffering. This is when we are rightly aligned with who we say we are aligned with, and this should make us rejoice. We are identified with Christ. We know that our reward is great in heaven, and it is secure because we are identified with Christ. He is unchanging, so if our reward is found in Him, our reward is unchanging. And we see this played out earlier in Acts 5.41, when the, the, some of the apostles were persecuted for their beliefs. They were beaten, and then they left, and what did they do? Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They were rejoicing simply because they had been deemed worthy enough to suffer. Worthy enough to be identified with a suffering Christ. They were worthy to speak on his behalf. They were his ambassadors. They were his representatives. They, that this was a way of reassuring the disciples that, yes, you are on my team, guys. I am with you. You are with me. And because of that, they are coming against you. So rejoice. You see, even this, God turns around. Satan sends these persecutors our way to make us unhappy, and hopefully we will turn away from following Jesus, right? That's his goal in this. This is Most of the time when you're persecuted for righteousness, snake, I'll say most of the time, it's, it's non-believers, right? You can suffer for righteousness' sake on, in believers' behalf, but most of the time it's going to be non-believers outside of Jesus that are causing this persecution. Satan sends those people to make us hopefully turn away from who we are following, right? And even though we can be saddened in those times, even though we can be upset and not like what we are going through, no one asks us to be happy about it, okay? There's a difference here between rejoicing and being glad in what, is, what the reward is versus the process. 
We can even be saddened about our persecutors and pray for them to be saved and pray that God would transform their lives and, and pray that they change to become a believer, right? But in the midst of all of that, simultaneously, we can look at Satan, not face to face, but we can look at Satan and go, thank you for giving me proof that I'm on the right team. Thank you for sending these persecutors my way. I was actually beginning to wonder, but you just reassured me. Thanks, bro. Maybe you shouldn't call it Satan, bro. It makes it sound like you're friends. But anyway, when Satan means for evil, God means for good, right? We see this all throughout Scripture. Satan meant Jesus' death for evil, right? Sorry, turn that one around. And if I can turn that one around, God can turn any of them around. That's what he is saying here. So we can rejoice. Persecution shows that we do not belong to this world. We are a square peg and this world is a round hole. We do not fit. Philippians 3.20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not rejoicing in the persecution and the pain in and of itself. We must make that distinction. That's masochistic, a little bit weird. If you're looking forward to the pain and persecution itself. But we are rejoicing in what the persecution is revealing to us. The result is worth rejoicing, not specifically the process. But even more than that, even more than the, the present reassurance that we are on the right team. Scripture tells us that we should rejoice by looking forward. For our reward is great in heaven. We should look to this as we struggle through these trials, through these persecutions. We should think eternally, not temporarily, not in the present time, but throughout eternity that our reward is great in heaven that sounds selfish though right it sounds like we are just thinking of ourselves well I'll suffer through this because I get something out of it and what he's saying is no you don't suffer through it because you get some out of it you rejoice because you get something out of it 2nd Corinthians 4 16 through 18 so we do not lose heart Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So beautiful. As we look not to the things that are seen, so don't look to the persecution, don't look to the people persecuting you, don't look to the circumstances, right? Not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. This clearly tells us to focus on our future glory that is to be revealed, and all other things will pale in comparison. Good, bad, or indifferent. They just won't seem that great anymore. They won't seem that big anymore. They won't seem to matter that much anymore. When we have the proper perspective of light momentary affliction, then we can realize the weight of the glory we shall receive is eternal and it just doesn't add up. Light momentary and eternal, it's an easy, easy decision to make, right? Hebrews eleven twenty four through 26 says, By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, big word here, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. 
he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. This is a huge bit of scripture here because it does not say Moses was downtrodden and regretful and wanted to really go to Egypt, but because God said, I have to, I'm going to go do this other thing. It doesn't say that, right? It says, choosing rather. That makes it seem Moses had a choice. He could have just gone back to Egypt and lived the high life. He had a choice, but he chose rather to be mistreated, to identify with his people as they suffered. But because he was looking forward to the reward, he was willing to embrace this suffering. He considered the worst things suffered with the Lord to be better than the absolute best things that this world has to offer. That is why he spurned Egypt the richest place on the planet at that point, and followed after God into the wilderness with a bunch of morons who were going to cause him nothing but stress. Read the, read the account of Moses. Nothing ever seems to really go good with the Israelites and him. It's a love-hate relationship. And yet he chose that instead of going to Egypt. He refused to be distracted from the great com promises of God by mere trifles and shiny things that Egypt had to offer. And then later in Hebrews, in case Moses isn't good enough for you, Hebrews 12, 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So verse 2 tells us to look to Jesus, who is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He starts it, he keeps it going to the end. That's what that means. But how did he endure such suffering in his lifetime? What does it say? Who, for the joy that was set before him. This is how Jesus went through suffering. He was constantly looking forward to the reward, looking forward to eternal things, looking forward to eternal joys that awaited in heaven. Even in the garden, praying that God would take his cup from him. So he wasn't even going into it like, woohoo, this is going to be awesome. He wanted the cup to, to be taken from him, but he was willing to say, your will, God, eternally minded, not temporarily minded, your will be done. He had an eternal mindset. He was never focused specifically on the transient, tangible things, but the unseen, permanent, waiting in heaven things. This is why we store our treasures up in heaven and not on earth, right? Eternal, temporary. On earth, they don't last. Moth and rust destroy, right? In heaven, they last for millennium, after millennium, after millennium. We don't even understand one millennium here, really, because none of us live that long. And yet, it's going to be millenniums of millenniums. It's hard to say. But we know that we are recipients of that great reward. This is how we can embrace suffering. This is how we can walk into suffering knowing it is coming, not surprised by it, because we know what's on the other side. This is why Mark and Parker can move to a place that, quite frankly, they may never come home from, and they know that. So if they listen to this online and they go, wait, whoa, it's that dangerous here? They're not surprised by that. They know that they kill Christians there. They've seen churches burned there simply because they are Christian churches. And yet, what do they do? They go there. They take their kids there. They raise them to show them, hey, kids, we're eternally minded here. This may end badly. 
It may not, but this could end badly, and it's worth it. Because these people need Jesus. We must be peacemakers in this place. And it is worth it because we are looking forward to our great reward in heaven. The fleeting pleasures of this world that we fight so desperately to hold on to can easily be abandoned in light of what Christ offers and the eternity that God is offering us. In light of the undeniable, unending security of future joy in Christ. When we have already come to the end of ourselves enough to be peacemakers, we can now be liberated from the idol of self-protection for the sake of Christ. Too many times we want to be safe, right? We want to make the safe decision and got to protect me and how does this affect me and what could happen to me, right? I'm not saying go out and don't wear your seatbelt, right? I'm not saying put yourself in harm's way on purpose. I'm saying don't worship protection and safety more than you worship Jesus. If Jesus calls you to Niger, go to Niger, even though you may die there. If Jesus calls you to Glasgow, go to Glasgow, even though you may die there. Because you never know what's going to happen, right? Where God calls, follow, but don't worship self-protection and safety more than you worship Jesus. Why? Because our reward is great in heaven. Why do bad things happen to me? This is a question we all ask, right? Every one of us has asked or will ask that question at some point in our lives. Why are these bad things happening to me right now? It just seems to pile on and pile on and pile on. But that's a question we only ask when we lack an eternal perspective, right? When we realize and focus on the infinite, eternal, never-ending array of joy that will be ours, we can view these as light, momentary sufferings and view them in their proper perspective, perspective like Paul and we can say, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And we will willingly, not begrudgingly, we will willingly have a loose grip on this world and the things of it. We will let them go when we are asked to let them go. We will wave by as someone is taking something away from us whether it be a job, whether it be a house, whether it be anything of this world, we can have a loose grip on it because of the eternal, never-ending joy that awaits us. You see, God promises us riches in heaven. He promises us a crown. He promises a new city, a new heaven, a new earth, unending joy, unending peace, no obstacles whatsoever to eternal joy and satisfaction in Him, and most importantly, no barrier between us and our Savior. John 17 records Jesus praying, right? What does He pray in John 17, 24? Father, I desire that they also, whom You have given Me, may be with Me where I am to see My glory. Jesus is the reward. He is our peace. He is our reward, and we can make peace because of what Jesus has done in our lives, and we can look forward to our reward because that is also Jesus, and we know it is not changing, and yet the Bible says if we walk in these promises that we will suffer until that time, and we must embrace that suffering, and we can do that because of what Paul goes on to close chapter 8 of Romans with. This is how I will close as well. But Paul reassures us that suffering is going to happen. If you read through Romans 8, you don't go, I wonder if I'm going to suffer. It's very clear. 
I'm going to suffer for Christ's sake. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. However, as we read earlier in Romans 8.18, it is light, it is momentary, and he would say it is ultimately worth it to trade those things for an indestructible, unfading, and abiding promise that we have from God because of Jesus. So my prayer is that we would boldly go from this place living for righteousness' sake in the face of definite persecution for it. That we would go from this place and share a gospel that frankly is getting more and more and more unpopular even in America. People don't want to hear this anymore and I pray that we would go from this place and boldly proclaim it and not care about the, the consequences. Remembering these words to give us boldness. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these promises. We thank you that we can look forward to the reward that we just read about in Romans and know that because of the promises made by an unchanging God that those things can't be taken away from us no matter what we face here on this earth. That you have promised and you will deliver and we can look forward to that reward as we are going through literally anything and say, you know what? doesn't matter how hard this gets because it can't separate me from those promises. It can't take away the promises that God has given me. And may we go to those things and embrace suffering boldly because of those promises. May we look to Jesus to be our peace and may we extend that peace to others and not care whether they accept or not for our own sake. But may we pray and hope that you would save them through our efforts. We just thank you so much for these promises. Thank you that we can rely on them every single day. That when things are not going our way, that we can look to you who suffered much more than we ever have or ever will. And yet, for the joy set before you, you endured the cross. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being our perfection, our obedience, and our salvation. May we go from this place and tell others about what you have done so that they may be worshipers of you as well. In Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. This morning we are going to turn our...